Well, the message title this morning is A Thrill of Hope. The reason I titled the message that way is because all throughout the gospel narratives, we see a glimmer of hope. Hope became a man, as a matter of fact. Hope robed himself in our humanity and in our frailty, as a matter of fact. We have great hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it is to him we'll turn our attention this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, that's the text. Let me ask you this question as we begin this morning. What is the greatest miracle that God has ever performed? If you had to turn your bulletin over this morning and write an answer to that question, what would you write? What is the greatest miracle that God has ever performed? Well, I'll submit to you that the greatest miracle that God has ever performed is that God became a man. It is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing uh, even than the resurrection, although the resurrection is absolutely essential to our faith. Far more amazing than the creation of the universe and the created cosmos is the fact that God became a man. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to our nature forever so that the infinite God could take on our person That is the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Paul says this, he says, great indeed is the mystery, this mystery of godliness. And then he tells us what this mystery is. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, was made manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. That is the Jesus whom we worship this morning. The Jesus who was made manifest in flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed and is being proclaimed among the nations, hopefully by us this morning, believed on in the world, and then taken up into glory And it is because of his glorious resurrection that we have a thrill of hope for our future resurrection. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, pins the following words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Through God. You may be seated. Four main points on your outline, four things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. You can go ahead and fill them in so you can follow along with us. Number one, I want to make mention of the timeliness of the Son, the, the, the timely nature of the Son's arrival. The timeliness of the Son. Secondly, the uniqueness of the Son. Third, the mission of the Son, and then fourth, the accomplishment of the Son of God. The timeliness, the uniqueness, the mission, and the accomplishment 
of the eternal, preexistent, incarnate Son of God. First, let's look at the timeliness of the Son. Look at verse 4. Just look at this phrase with me. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. What does Paul mean when he refers to the birth of Christ as taking place when the fullness of Christ or the fullness of time had come? What does Paul mean there? Well, in simple terms, we can understand Paul to mean that every divinely ordained detail leading up to Jesus' entry into our world had been accomplished. The stage had been set, all the characters were in place, and God, the director of redemption's divine drama, cued the main character. Like a master tailor, with a needle and thread in hand, God had been sovereignly orchestrating every detail of time from creation to the moment when he would send his son into the world. Speaking about God's perfect timing, Charles Spurgeon once said this, The infinite Lord. He appoints the date of every event. All times are in his hand. There are no loose threads in the providence of God. There are no stitches that are dropped. There are no events that are left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. And the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. That is our God. When the fullness of time had come. Well, the, interest, the entrance of Jesus into this world was right on time. It was right on time politically. It was right on time linguistically. And it was right on time spiritually. Let me uh, help bring some, some light to these three thoughts for you. Politically, track with me here for a moment. Politically, Rome was the central superpower of the day. Much of the world, as a matter of fact, rested under Rome's government. Prior to Rome's political control, the landscape of time had been tattered by war and unrest. But as Rome rose to political and military control, uh, there was a a time period in in, in Rome's history. We call it the Pax Romana, or the the Roman peace, in which it was instituted. This was a 200-some-odd-year period that brought relative peace and unity throughout the empire, and it ushered in political and economic stability, which hadn't been prior seen. It was during this time, during the Pax Romana, that Rome developed a transportation system with major roadways that led from Rome throughout the rest of the inhabited world. You've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Well, that was literally true. Now, we have to be very careful when we're talking about how a person is rightly connected to Christ, how a person comes into right relationship with God. All roads don't lead to Rome. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Interpretation, you can't go over me, you can't go under me, you can't go around me, you must come through me. There is one way. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But from a logistical perspective, because of this 200-year period in Rome's history, a transportation system, with major roadways that led from Rome throughout the rest of the inhabited world, were laid. This, along with the relative peace experienced in the land, made it possible for the gospel to spread with relative peace and freedom. Relative ease, peace, and freedom. You see, there was political, a political time, and it was right. 
Linguistically, the time was right as well. As a result of Alexander the Great's conquests, uh, some 350 years prior to Jesus' birth, Greek culture and Greek language permeated the ancient world. Though Rome conquered Greece militarily and politically ruled the world, Greek influence and culture dominated the Roman Empire. Okay? Rome had control of the world, basically, but Greek culture dominated. One of the results of uh, Greek cultural influence was that Koine Greek, which, by the way, is the language that the New Testament was written in, the original language behind the English that you're looking at in your Bible this morning is Koine Greek. It became the prominent language. While that wasn't Alexander the Great's intention, in God's sovereignty, that meant that Paul and his disciples, as they traveled on these well-laid roads from city to city, they didn't have to learn a new language or have their message translated into other local dialects. Most people spoke Greek and could read Greek. And so, the gospel could linguistically spread with relative ease. The time was right politically. The time was right linguistically. The time was also right spiritually. You see, old religions and old philosophies were dying. They were seen to be powerless to change lives. The law had accomplished its intended purpose of showing man his utter sinfulness and his, and his inability to live up to God's righteous standard. Israel at this point had rejected much of the idol worship that took place before the Babylonian captivity. Messianic expectations and anticipations were growing. They were high. Monotheism Uh, One God, the belief in one God, was generally accepted throughout Israel. The Old Testament at this point had been completed and compiled by Ezra and others. Synagogues that taught the Old Testament scripture dotted the landscape. And the timing was right for the fulfillment of prophecy concerning Christ's birth. You see, all of this cultivated fertile ground for the preaching and the spreading of the gospel message. And so Paul writes... But when the fullness of time had come. You see, God, like a master tailor, stitching every day and every moment together from from the moment that he spoke creation into existence until Jesus Christ would divest himself of his heavenly glory and, and put on our human flesh. Every event and every detail had been accomplished and the time was right but especially the time was right for the furthering, for the spreading, for the propagation of the gospel message. Who was it that was lying in the manger? Well, it was the very child that all time had been waiting for. The timeliness of the son. And number two, the uniqueness of the son. Not only was the time right, but the person was right. The person was unique. Look back at verse 4. Paul writes this phrase, he says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I want to look at those three phrases there, each separated by a comma. Number one, God sent forth his son. Number two, born of a woman. Number three, born under the law. God sent forth his son. What is Paul saying here? I think that Paul is highlighting the deity of Christ. When Paul says that God sent forth his Son, I think he's telling us something of the deity of Christ. The word translated sent forth 
It's the Greek word, the Greek verb, ex apostello. It means to send out on a mission. As a matter of fact, that word was used by Jesus of his disciples. He, he sent them out that they might preach. He ex apostelloed them that they might preach. Well, the same word there, ex apostello, to send out on a mission, is used of the person of Jesus. God, ex apostello, he sent out his son on a mission. You see, Jesus was not a self-appointed savior. He was sent by the authority of his father to redeem sinners like you and like me. You see, this glorious truth that God sent forth his son, it lies at the very heart of the Christmas account and of the good news of the gospel. You see, God intervened decisively in human history and he did so by sending forth his son into human history. Heaven broke into earth. God sent forth his son. Notice that God is the initiator of redemption here. It wasn't we who moved towards God, but rather God moved towards us. What grace, what grace, what mercy, what unmerited favor that God would be the initiator of redemption, that he would take the step forward. It was God, the offended party, that broke the silence with infinite compassion. Matter of fact, in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, David pens these words. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what wonderful pieces of creation, by the way. And David says, when my eyes behold what you have made, this question comes to mind, what is man? What is man that you would be mindful of him? Why would you consider me? When when, when the stars worship you perfectly, when the moons and and the planets worship you perfectly, what is man that you would turn your attention toward him? Not only him, but a broken him and a broken her, ravaged by the effects of sin. What is man that you would be mindful of me? What a humble statement. The fact that Jesus was sent, that underscores his eternality. I had a young lady ask me a question last night after our Christmas Eve service. She said, Pastor Eric, I'm having a hard time getting my mind around forever. And I said, yeah, we all are. We all have a hard time getting our minds around forever. The fact that God has forever existed. Before the foundation of the world, into eternity past. I mean, there's a, there's a point in which it just kind of makes your, your mind turn to mush to think about. God has always been. And not only that, but God created us. He created us in his image. That means that we will live forever. You ever think about that? You will live forever. In one of two very distinct places. But you will live forever, my friend. And what you do with these fleeting, the average lifespan for an American is something around 72 years. What you do with those years will determine where you spend forever. Eternity. The fact that Jesus was sent Sent from the Father. That underscores his eternality. He wasn't wasn't created 
He took on human flesh. He existed eternally. He existed before he was sent. We call this the eternal sonship of Christ. There's a a whole myriad of theologians uh, out there that would say that Jesus Christ is not eternal, that, that he was a created being. No, Jesus existed in eternity past. He was sent forth from the Father. He is the eternal, pre-existent Son of God, equal in nature, but willingly subordinate. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds us this. Speaking about Jesus, he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's not a created Jesus. That's a pre-existent, eternal Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, redemption wasn't God's plan B. Sending his son forth, born of a woman, born under the law, friends, that wasn't plan B. When man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God was not scrambling around trying to figure out how he was going to pick the pieces up and fix the mess. Sending forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, was always plan A. It was always plan A. You see, while it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the virgin birth, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, this has always been God's plan A. God has never deviated from his plan. God never will deviate from his plan. And it's because of that that we have a thrill of hope. That all of God's promises are yes and amen. That all whom God has brought into covenant saving relationship with himself will be secured until the end. You see, redemption's plan is an eternal plan. God has always purposed to save erring sinners by crushing his son in their place. Well, in what way did the Savior of the world make his entrance into our world? Look back at verse 4 for just a moment. God sent forth his Son. I think Paul's highlighting or he's underscoring the deity of Christ there. He was sent. But Paul goes on and he says, born of a woman. And I think what Paul's highlighting here is the humanity of Christ. The Son of God became the Son of a woman. Not only was Jesus completely divine, but he was also completely human. You were here last night with us as we worshipped together. Andy talked about the hypostatic union. It's a a big uh, 12-cylinder theological word, but it's an important word. It describes theologically the the union between the divine and the human. How how the, the divine God takes on and robes himself with human flesh so that he remains all of his deity but at the same time encompasses complete humanity. He didn't become less divine, and he was no less human. He was the God-man. Another word that we use to describe that would be the theanthropic nature of Christ. Theos is the Greek word for God. Anthropos, it's where we get our word anthropology, the study of man. Theoanthropos, the theanthropic man, the God-man. Fully God, yet fully man. What a glorious mystery, by the way. That also, like thinking about eternity, will cause your mind to turn something of a gelatinous nature. The heart of the gospel, 
and the Christmas account is that God not only came to us, but that God became one of us. The heart of the gospel is not only that God came to us, but that would be glorious, but that he became one of us. Glory of glories, mystery of mysteries. When Paul says that Jesus was born of a woman, I think more than underlining, I think more than underscoring, I think more than highlighting the virgin birth, though that is a core doctrine to evangelical Christianity, Jesus was conceived of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. As important as that is, I think instead, Paul is underlining here the humanity of Christ. He's not discounting in any way the virgin birth, but I think that that Paul is underlining or highlighting the humanity of Christ. You see, Jesus had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice to have the infinite worth necessary to atone for the sin of mankind. But he also had to be fully man in order to represent mankind and to take the penalty of sin upon himself on man's behalf. It was man who sinned. It was man who was under the curse. It was man who was condemned to render his life forfeit to God. Apart from God's grace, all we have the ability to do is render our lives forfeit, failed to a thrice holy God. But Jesus. But Jesus. Jesus could not have substituted for sinful man on the cross had he not taken upon himself the likeness of man. He had to be God to have the power of the Savior, but he had to be man to have the position of substitute. Let that roll around in your heart and mind for a moment. He had to be God to have the the power of the Savior, but he had to be a man to have the position of substitute. By man came death. By man also must come resurrection. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Jesus' act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, speaking about our brother Adam, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's our elder brother Christ, the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus' humanity allowed him to identify with us. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, praise God, but one who is in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's a thrill of hope. We have an elder brother who has come and has been tempted and tried in every way as we are, yet he and only he is without sin. Therefore, he and only he can make appropriate substitution 
for the reckless mess of sinners. Jesus was born of a woman. I think Paul's highlighting the humanity of Christ there. We see the deity of Christ. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the humanity of Christ. And then this phrase here, look back at verse 4. Paul says, born under the law. You see, Jesus met the law's legal requirements for us. Not only was Jesus born of a woman, but he was also born under the yoke of the law. Jesus subjected himself to the law in order that he might redeem those who were enslaved to it. Jesus took on and bore, lived under the yoke of the law that he might free those who were enslaved, you and me, you and I, to it. From his circumcision eight days after his birth, to his being presented to God in the temple by Joseph and Mary, to his celebration of the Passover with his disciples just days before his death, every detail of Jesus' life was under the direction of the law. Remember Jesus told his own disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The contrary is true. I haven't come to abolish them, but I've come to, fill in the word, fulfill them. To fulfill them. What's the significance of Jesus being born under the law, you ask? Well, Paul explains that for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Two more great words for you in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, two great words there. But God We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God. Two more glorious words for you in your Bible in Romans chapter 8. God did. God did. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How did he do that? He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How might it be that the law is fulfilled in us? Only if there's a great exchange. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. We did not. So how is it then, friends, That the law, that Paul can write here in Romans chapter 8, that the law is perfectly fulfilled in us only if his righteous merit is credited to our otherwise bankrupt account. Paul's told us who it was that came, Jesus Christ, when he came in the fullness of time, how he came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, now Paul is going to tell us why Jesus came. You see, the focus of the text shifts here from the circumstances surrounding Jesus' coming to the purpose of his coming. He was sent by the Father. That speaks of his incarnate deity. Very God of very God. He was born of a woman. He humbled himself and took on our flesh. That is, very man of very man. He was born under the law, righteously fulfilling every detail of its prescription where we failed. But for what purpose? Why did the second person of the triune Godhead disrobe himself of his heavenly glory? Why did he leave angelic worship to be despised and rejected 
by men. Well, the purpose of Jesus' being sent into our world was twofold. First, he came to redeem those who were hopeless and helpless under the crushing weight of the law. And second, he came to adopt those whom he rescued and who he redeemed under the crushing weight of the law into his family. He came to redeem those who were hopeless and helpless under the crushing weight of the law and then to adopt those very individuals whom he redeemed into his family. Number three on your outline, if you're taking notes, is the mission of the son. Ex apostello, the one sent forth. The one sent forth on a mission. What was that mission? To redeem sinners. Look at verse five, the first phrase there. Paul writes, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. The word translated redeem there, we've actually seen it in our study in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. But that, that word there translated redeem, it's the Greek word ex agorazo. It's a compound word, ex meaning out or from, and agorazo, which means to buy or to purchase from the market. So in, order, in other words, to, to, to buy out of the market or to purchase out of the market, the slave market. Remember, we were all enslaved to sin under the, the crushing weight of the law, and Jesus Christ redeemed us, ex agorazo, bought us out of, purchased us out of the slave market. Interesting to note that Jesus was ex apostello. He was sent out on a mission. On a mission to what? Ex agorazo. To purchase those crushed under the weight of sin out of the slave market. You see, Paul is saying that the purpose of Jesus' coming was to set free those who were held captive under the oppression of the law by paying the price of their redemption. Let me ask you this question, friends. Has he paid the price for you? Has he paid the price for you? Not my grandma was a Christian. Not I have friends that are Christians. Not my mom is a Christian or my dad is a Christian. Or I own a Bible with my name stamped in gold foil on the front of it. Not do I have some verses memorized. Not do I hold an office in the church, not do I serve in this way or capacity, not that people think that I am, but do you savingly know Christ? Has he purchased your redemption? Personally, individually. Each one of us failed to keep the law and subsequently are under the curse of the law. Matter of fact, one chapter back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul tells us this. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if we're walking a perfect path and we misstep but once, we're guilty of violating the whole law. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul uses this language. He, he says, you, you are, are mounting up 
outside of Christ, for, for, for a person who doesn't know Christ savingly, every day, every moment, every breath you draw, you're, you're, you're mounting up God's displeasure. God's wrath is being stored up, he says, for the day of God's righteous judgment. You see, there's a day coming when God will right every wrong, when God will deal with every remaining particle of sin in the universe that he has created, including in your heart and in mine, and there's only two possible options. It was either paid for, your sin was either paid for by Christ's death on the cross, no other way, or you will pay for it. And here's our word again, forever. Forever. Paul says, if you rely on works of the law, in other words, if you rely on your own record, if you rely on your own merit, if you rely on your own works, if you rely on your own checklist, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things that are written in the book of the law. You see, not only are we under the law, legally, and that we're obligated to be righteous before a holy God, you ever think about that? We are obligated as, as, uh, as moral human beings. We are required, we are obligated to be righteous before a holy God. But we're also under the law spiritually, not only legally, but we're also under the law spiritually and that our hearts are helplessly fixated on trying to fulfill it in order to win God's favor. Friends, that is a futile endeavor, by the way. Our hearts in our sin are hopelessly fixated on trying to win, trying to garner, trying to gain God's approval by our own merit. And it's futile. It's helpless. It leaves us helpless. That's why we're in need of Christ to to come and to die in our stead, to, to, to grant us His perfect righteousness, to impute to us His perfect righteousness. You see, trying to win God's favor, that's a burden that's impossible to satisfy. Raise your hand if you've read John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Some wonderful spiritual allegory in in that old classic there. If you've read it, uh, you'll remember uh, that there's a part in in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where where faithful encounters Moses, or where faithful encounters the law, okay? And then what happens is faithful and Christian have a dialogue about faithful's encounter with Moses, or faithful's encounter of the law. You see, faithful in Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress found out that the law was unable to show mercy, or Moses, as he refers to it, was unable to show mercy, Let me just read you a few lines here. Faithful speaking. He says, Now when I had proceeded about halfway up the mountain of difficulty, I looked behind me and saw someone coming after me, as swift as the wind. So he overtook me, just about where the shady shady resting place is located. Just as soon as the man overtook me, without a word, he struck me down and he left me for dead. However, upon reviving a little from unconsciousness, I asked him why he had treated me so brutally. This is faithful speaking here. He indicated that it was on account of my secret inclination to heed the old Adam 
And so he struck me with another deadly blow on my chest, and he beat me to the ground so that once again I lay as though dead at his feet. Then when I regained consciousness, I pleaded with him for mercy, but he replied that he did not know how to show mercy. This is the law. The law does not know how to show mercy. And then he knocked me down once more. That's what it's like trying to live up to the law's expectation. You just get knocked down over and over and over again. The law doesn't know how to show mercy. Undoubtedly, he would have completely finished me off had it not been for another person who came and demanded that he immediately cease with his assault. Who do you think that other person is that comes to the law and demands that he cease his assault? We desperately need a Savior who can set us free from the curse of breaking the law, but who can also free us from the burden of trying to be saved by keeping the law? Look back for a moment. Turn, turn back in your Bible, just a chapter, to Galatians 3.13. Probably one of my favorite verses in Scripture. We desperately need a Savior who can set us free from the curse of not only breaking the law, but from the burden of trying to be saved by keeping the law, by trying to earn it ourselves. Paul says this in Galatians 3.13, Christ, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's a thrill of hope, is it not? What's the cost of redemption? What is this going to cost? The cost of redemption was Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and his satisfaction of all the law's legal demands. Redemption required both the sinless life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my uh, well-loved pastors, he's passed away now, but Boyce once said this, he said, there is no gospel without the cross. Christmas by itself, as glorious as it is, that God would robe himself in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas by itself is no gospel. The life of Christ by itself is no gospel. Even the resurrection, as important as it is in the total scheme of things, is not a gospel by itself. For the good news is not just that God became a man, nor that God has spoken to reveal the proper way of life for us, or even that death, the great enemy, has been conquered. Rather, friends, get this, rather the good news is that sin has been dealt with. Jesus has suffered its penalty as our representative so that we might never have to suffer it. That's the gospel message. And all God's people said, Has that gospel message taken root in your heart and borne fruit? The fruit of regeneration, the fruit of a new life. The cross, the cross was the pulpit from which God preached mercy and grace to a lost humanity. Well, how did Jesus redeem us? 
He did it by fulfilling the law's demands and then by bearing the curse of the law. In order to remove our legal status as sinners, deserving only God's righteous condemnation, Jesus gave us a legal status as sons, deserving great honor. Not only did we receive full pardon, but we receive all the privileges of sons. In other words, Jesus not only removed the curse that we rightfully deserve, but he also comes along and he gives us all the blessings that he rightly deserved. You see, Jesus' salvation is not just receiving a pardon and a release from death row in prison, but it's a, it's, a, it's a being blessed with all that he was given. We're freed, and then we're received into the family. Number four on your outline, and we'll bring our message to a close here this morning, is the accomplishment of the Son. The accomplishment of the Son. Let me turn your attention to the back half of verse 5. And we'll read through verse 7 here. Paul pens these words. He says, So that Jesus fulfilled the mission, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave that's crushed under the weight of the, of, of, of the law. But you're a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. You see, Jesus' mission was to redeem those who were under the law. But what exactly did that redemption accomplish? Well, the glorious reality of redemption is that God not only changed our legal status before him, but also our relational status. God not only changed our legal status from condemned to pardoned, But he also changed our relational status from child of wrath to son of God. Jesus' death on the cross, his full payment of redemption's price, the ultimate purpose of redemption is that God would turn his enemies into friends and slaves into sons. What are the privileges of adopted children? Let's look at just a few of these here quick this morning. What are some of the privileges of adopted sons and adopted daughters. If you know Christ savingly, here are a few of those blessings or a few of those privileges. Number one, or A on your outline, assurance. Assurance. Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. You see, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit has many roles, namely the the application of redemption to the life of the believer. But the Holy Spirit also gives assurance Assurance of what? Assurance of salvation. Paul in Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Is that true of you? That God's Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are indeed a child of God. A changed life will validate that. The Holy Spirit brings us into a personal, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, whom we may approach at any time and under any circumstance, knowing that He hears us, that He lovingly cares for us, because we are His own. Because we are His own. Spurgeon once said this, speaking about assurance and adoption. He said, you, if you know Christ, you've been adopted, and God has never canceled an adoption yet. 
Praise God. God has never canceled an adoption. There is such a thing as regeneration, but there is also such a thing as a life that never dies out. If you are born unto God, you are born unto God. The stars may turn to coals. The sun and the moon may become clots of blood. But he that is born of God has life within him which can never end. That's forever, my friends. He is God's child, and God's child he shall be. Therefore, let him walk at large like a child, like an heir, like a prince of the royal bloodline, who bears a relationship to the Lord which neither time nor eternity can destroy. This is why Jesus was made of a woman and made under the law, that he might give us to enjoy the fullness of the privilege of adopted sons and daughters. Assurance is a privilege. Secondly, intimacy is a privilege of an adopted son or daughter. You see, the Holy Spirit confirms our adoption. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons, whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, or translated, Daddy. It was the term used of a a child. It was an endearing term to speak of Dad. The Holy Spirit's operation is to bring us to the Father, and then He assures us of our kinship to Him. See on your outline, freedom. Paul says you're no longer a slave. You've been freed. You're no longer a slave but a son. You see, in Christ we're no longer slaves to the law. We're no longer bound to the tyranny of sin and death. We've been pardoned, we've been purchased, and we've been adopted into the family so that our legal status is no longer that of slave but a son. And then inheritance, D. We've been given assurance, intimacy, freedom, and then lastly, inheritance. Paul says you are an heir through God. Paul says if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. And the question I have for you is this, what is an heir? What is an heir? Well, an heir is a beneficiary. It's a person who inherits and is legally entitled to an estate. What does this mean for us as believers? It means that we are legally entitled to everything that Christ has purchased for us. Think about this. Among men, okay, among men, that's, that's you and I, sons are only heirs after their father is deceased. But our father is in heaven and he lives. And yet we have full heirship to him. When a son becomes an heir, that inheritance is guaranteed. It's not a prize to be won. If you're trying to win inheritance, if you're trying to win God's favor, stop. I heard a preacher one time, he said, stop trying and start dying. If a grain of wheat falls to the ground and it remains a seed, then it dies. But if it dies, then it it bears fruit. The implication here is that Not only has our sin penalty been paid in full, but we don't have to work to earn God's favor. We already have it. We've inherited all his favor because of Christ in our place. The astonishing bottom line of sonship is that God now treats us is as as if we had done everything that Christ 
has done. So here's the million dollar question and we'll conclude here. Has this son been born in your heart? Has Jesus Christ been born in your heart? Is the eternal incarnate Son of God, King of your heart, who is this infinite infant in the manger, you ask? Well, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count or consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He literally poured himself out. The word is kenosis, to to empty, to divest yourself, pour it out of everything by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he yours? Is he yours?